Good evening, good afternoon, and good morning, and welcome to this, the 25th CJ Cinema Summit. My name is Patrick Bonsehovsky, editor of Celluloid Junkie, and as always, and for 25 sessions now, we've been bringing this to you, courtesy of the cooperation with our good friends at Film Grail and The Big Picture. Now, when we set out this in March, none of us hoped to be doing it this long. We hoped that we wouldn't, there wouldn't be a need for this, but we find ourselves here on this very challenging week. Now, if you want to get in touch with us between sessions, and we do urge you to get in touch with us, you can either do that by putting it on comment on the community board forum. That's community.cjcinemasummit.com. Or do it the old-fashioned way of just dropping us an email, tips at celluloidjunkie.com. Now, before we go to the panel, and before I introduce my colleague Sperling on this, I just want to say a couple of things, which is I know that it's been a very challenging week. We have had some bad news, and I don't need to remind you what it's been about Bond and Cineworld. And it's easy to lose track of the good news that's happening and, and you know the long-term perspective. Now, it might seem cold comfort, especially if you're an employee of Cineworld or Regal, to learn that box office in China is now bigger than it was this time last year, or that India is about to reopen its cinemas this month, or even that local films are doing very well, thank you, in countries like Poland and France. What does that help us in the UK or US, you might ask? Well, it is a global community. Cinema is truly global. So if Hollywood sees that cinemas are doing well, if audiences can return safely to cinemas in other countries, we can learn from that. We can also see that there is a market for films. And who knows, the Hollywood studios might even bring forward some of their releases. Stranger things have happened. And let's not forget that's what they did in Spain. So there is hope. And we're going to be hearing more of that from our guests today. But before I do, let me bring on to the virtual stage my colleague, as always, and good friend, Jay Sperling Reich. How are you, Sperling? Well, you know, as good as can be expected during these times, but thank you and thanks for the words of encouragement, I suppose would be the, the right word. But this particular summit, we were supposed to be talking to some of the people holding events that are coming up, like Cine Asia, which is coming up in November, and Expo Cine, which is the largest trade show in South America and Latin America. If you've never been to Brazil, and you've never been to South America, Expo Cine should be one of your first stops. It's held every October. And I've been told that I can break the news here, Patrick. It is the first bring your own Hyperenia event to be held anywhere in the world. And I have a feeling that's because, uh, you know, this webinar, all these platforms, Kachasa does not translate very well via technology. So I'll throw it back to you. And I want to see you in a samba costume next time for that truly Brazilian feeling. So, you know, we make do. But in the meantime, let's get cracking with our first panel. We're going to give us really a bit of a bird's eye perspective on what's been happening. And to kick us off, it gives me great pleasure to welcome back my colleague from Times of Yesteryear, Charlotte Jones with Omdia. Hello, Charlotte. Good to have you with us. Hello, Patrick. Thank you very much. It's, it's, great, it's great to be here again. Now, obviously, these are uncertain times, but you can put it, even though it's uncertain and things are down, you can put a number on it. So I know that you've been doing a great job of tracking what's been happening globally in terms of box office and cinemas, and even looking ahead to what we could be expecting. So could you share with us what it is that you're seeing and what it is that you're anticipating for the cinema industry? Yes, certainly. So, I mean, I mean, what we've all seen so far is that the 2020 calendar is proving far from sticky. So we've been looking at a lot of industry markers to try and gauge you know, how this year will turn out. And I think it's certainly been one of the most challenging times, literally, to, you know, to try and forecast sort of any sort of global picture. 
But I think what we've come up with, we come up with sort of key sort of goalposts. So the first one is, you know, it needs to be the right operating environment. So you need the right conditions. The second one that should flow after the operating conditions are in place is the product. And that can also include, you know, more innovative content. It can include strong local content. And the third one is the behavior of audiences. Now, this third one can only really literally start to flow once you have the other two in place. And really what we're looking for is sort of normalizing the behavior of returning to the cinema environment. So, I mean, after you've been a couple of times, you've seen how safe it is, you know, how welcoming it is, and you're sort of falling back in love with that experience. So with those sort of three factors in consideration, we we have seen sort of operative measures sort of go up and go down. Some of the restrictions are easing in Asia Pacific and some of them are tightening in Europe. So sort of sort of local lockdowns in Madrid and, and Dublin. So, you know, a varying sort of global picture. What we have prepared is we have sort of four territories that we think are sort of key markers. And we think a lot of other territories will start to fit into one of these various categories. So the first one is obviously China. We're talking about this quite a lot at the moment. It is the most recovered market relative to the stage to date. So I think if you're looking at the September box office, that's sort of coming in around 67% of where you would have expected it to be. So the August box office was slightly higher, but again, it's relative to the, the same month in the same time last year. So obviously the local films have played a very strong role in that. A number of local titles literally, you know, in the last week or so. So we're expecting sort of China to finish with around 32% of what we would have seen in 2019. So that's not the highest relative sort of forecast, but as we can see, China was mostly closed for the first six months. So that brings us up to 3 billion and that will see China sort of be the largest uh, overall international market for 2020. So in the US, it's looking like sort of a relatively quiet final quarter, give or take some final adjustments. Uh, So we've lowered our forecast for this market and we would expect to see the US market sort of fall within sort of 20% of the sort of 2019 figure. And on the chart, what we're looking at here is kind of the lost opportunity, the lost revenue. North America sort of really having sort of a flat sort of Q4 there. Of course, there there's some incremental box office, but not to the scale that sort of China is beginning to take off as we would have expected to see that for 2019. So South Korea has also had a lot of success with local titles. I think Korea is different because that market remained open. So it was allowed to sort of accumulate box office quite slowly over time. It sort of had a bit of a hiccup there in September because they had sort of a local coronavirus scare or sort of a rise of cases. But we're expecting that to sort of feed back in and sort of come back on track. So the last market that I think we can sort of benchmark is France. So again, it's another market that has very strong local content. I think in September, we we saw sort of around 50% of the same total we would have expected to see last year. And I think that also comes in part because that market did open up fairly early on, I think um, later in May. It has some impact in terms of normalising that cinema going behaviour. So I think France will end up sort of around 39% in terms of the total that it could have achieved last year. And so in terms of how other markets fit into that scale, I think, we, Patrick, as you've already discussed, we're discussing some of the other local markets such as Spain and Italy. We've had local films in Italy up to 56% share, in, in Spain up to 40% share, driven by strong local content. But of course, if we look at the global picture there, we can see that we're not expecting the box office to be back to normal in 2021. In fact, we would still expect to see it probably around 40% off the peak that we saw in 2019 and the most recent forecast obviously um, taking into account any further deviations is that sort of 
2020 will be around 70% down from 2019. But that's still incredibly good. I mean, in terms of we look at that and what we're seeing is, is a V-shaped recovery. I mean, economists talk about that in the general economy, but in box office, I mean, you do actually predict that. So to me, that's incredibly positive. And, and that's a great transition now to Paul because, you know, obviously so many titles have now been shifted to 2021. Is there any space left in 2021 you know, for all these films. And then what are we still going to be seeing in 2020? Hi, Paul, by the way. Hi, Patrick. How are you? You know, it's really interesting when I look at those numbers that Charlotte just presented, it really does show you that in a lot of countries around the world, the cinema is coming back. And this is all based on the availability of cinemas, the capacity and all of that. And I think, you know, I work with the press all the time. And what's always out there is the, the gloom and doom. And I think that's natural considering what's going on. But there are some real bright spots. And I think there's this idea just in the general public that all cinemas are closing. There aren't going to be any big movies. Yes, Bond moved, but Wonder Woman is still out there. Soul is still out there. There's a bunch of titles still set for release, big titles. Of course, anything can change at any moment. We all know that. But I just think that as a collective, as an industry, we have to let the world know that the cinemas are being very well maintained. I think the safety and health of people, that's top of mind for exhibition. And correct me if I'm wrong, I haven't heard any negative sentiment about the movie theater experience from anyone, at least not publicly. I haven't heard anything like that. I think the cinemas are doing everything right, but it's a pandemic. They can't just open if their city, state, locality is not able to open or they're not allowed to. So I want to make it clear that, and everyone on this call loves the big screen, but this isn't a mandate against cinema. These are dynamic market forces that are really hard to, how do you, how do you plan for this? How do you rail against it? How do you create that impression of safety, health, and security? Because that's number one. It's the word of mouth about the experience. I think that's even more important than the word of mouth about the movies themselves right now. But there are a lot of movies on the way. And then 2021, of course, is a cinematic waiting room of sorts where all these movies are waiting for the movie theater to come back. And most of these that have been moved, as far as we know now, have not gone to streaming. They're waiting for the movie theater. It's the biggest stage for these movies and they're waiting for them. But that's a tough road and a tough storm to weather right now for exhibition, depending on which country they're operating in. And we want to get into the streaming. There's some good news on that front too, but I think we've got questions pouring in from the audience, Sperling. Is there anything you've selected from the bunch? Well, there is one here from Manuel Orlandini, and it's about whether local content and independent films should be taking up the space of, that Hollywood once dominated. And of course, what should theaters become? When will we see a switch to these movie theaters possibly becoming stadiums or performance spaces? I guess maybe oh. Charlotte, I don't know if you have any insight into that. I think it depends on how innovative the actual local exhibitor is. And we've already seen that in some cases, event cinema can account for a huge proportion of a cinema's revenue. So I think this gives the industry an opportunity now to look back and consider, you know, what is the type of content we want to play? Where do we want to move to in the future? And who are, you know, who, who are the partners that, that we want to go forward with, invest with and sort of make cinema into something that can possibly be a reinvention of, of itself. So definitely a good time to sort of think about innovation. Well, that's a good segue for our third guest as well. I want to bring him on stage because a company that's been really behind 
driving innovation in cinema, and I'm not just talking in the concession counter, uh, is Oliver Delaney from the Coca-Cola Company Europe. Welcome, Ollie. Thank you, Patrick, and hello to everyone on the line. Good to have you on again. You are so well connected in terms of talking to the cinemas and, and sort of, you know, being a friend of cinemas for years and years. What kind of conversations are you having with them right now? What are you hearing? You know, throughout this year, all of our teams, whether it's our international teams or local teams, have been in close contact with all of our cinema partners across the globe. So, you know, in the last week since the news on Friday broke, you know, that's been no different. So this week, I know all of our local teams have been in conversation with our cinema partners, really focusing on what we can influence. You know, we understand the bigger macro picture. There's very little we can do about some of what's going on. So it's about what can we do. So there's probably three areas of focus. So the first is around retail. So what we know, and I can speak for Europe, is since cinemas have reopened, when people are coming back to the cinema, more people are buying cinema food and beverage. You know, the incidence rates are higher, the basket spend is higher. So that's a great trend. You know, we can't necessarily control the traffic, but we can control what they're buying. So the more people we get coming back for the full cinema experience with a coconut popcorn and the big screen, the better. And within that, you know, we've got a huge opportunity with digital. The one thing that we've seen across the globe is this huge shift into digital behavior. A commonly quoted fact is we've gone forward about three years in terms of digital adoption. So that's an opportunity right now, you know, whether that's pre-order, click and collect, whether that's digital kiosks in the cinemas, you know, we're seeing huge increases of consumers shifting into that way of ordering. And it should enable growth, hopefully now, but also through winter. That's a great point that, you know, cinemas haven't just been closed. You know, a lot of them have been working very hard behind the scenes, not just to be able to welcome patrons back, but in order to upgrade to necessary work that they were putting off. And of course, starting to embrace all of these new technologies, whether it's, you know, app ordering and ticketing and so on. So cinemas, not just not dead, but, you know, it's very active, even when it's hibernating. Yeah, and absolutely. And certainly the people, you know, we saw it first in Norway, I think one of the first markets to reopen. We saw that trend of more people buying, you know, food and drink with their with their cinema visit. And that's then we've seen that across Europe. So, you know, I think holding on to that and then the digital opportunity, I think, is one for now, but also for the future. The second area is us looking in with it within our own armory of brands, calendars. You know, is there anything we can do with our Halloween campaigns or Christmas campaigns that can support our customers through winter? And then the last is revisiting some of the conversations we may have had in kind of quarter two when we had the lockdowns. Yeah, an example of that would be delivering out. So I think the last time I was on, I talked about the example of Sinopolis in Mexico. So they started a trial of delivering cinema food and beverage to people's homes. So that started off in a trial in quarter two. But I had an update this week from our team in Mexico that that's now been offered by over 220 cinemas across Mexico and has now become a a material piece of, of revenue for Sinopolis. So again, I think that's something that it's not core to anybody's business, but I think if it can drive additional revenue through, you know, a challenging period, then, then why not look at it? So, you know, I think everybody should think, you know, is that something I could do in my market? So they're the kind of things that we're thinking about and talking to our customers about. No, those are all important. Spray, over to you for the questions. Okay. I was going to say Amy Mater from Venue Valet in Austin, also the Dine and Cinema Summit. She says apparently Texas is out of Diet Coke. So, Ali, if you could maybe, <laughs> if you could fix that, that would be great. I'll just hang up on this and I'll give them a call right now. Okay. Don't worry. So, Gerald, whose last name I always mispronounce, of course, he's from Indonesia. He's run Cinepolis there, a long tenured history in this industry. He's asking, have there been any COVID clusters traced back to a cinema anywhere in the world? I don't know, Charlotte, if you know that. 
Certainly, we know about the study that was done in South Korea with 31 million people and no cases have been traced back to any of those. And those cinemas never closed down. The trade groups have been tracking this. They haven't found anything. Charlotte, what have you found? Again, I mean, that this would be excellent data. It's not something that we've come across. And I've never heard either of anything traced back to a cinema. I mean, I think cinemas are making such incredible, you know, standards of you know, cleanliness, hygiene, and following through making customers feel extremely safe. So I definitely think this message should be broadcast far and wide. First off, I guess I should point out that 31 million people going to cinemas in South Korea, they're being tracked on their phones and they have no choice but to be tracked on their phones. So that is a study that is being done objectively. That said, we also have a question coming in from Richard Welsh. And we all know Apple, Netflix, and Amazon, they're all putting movies into movie theaters now. They are releasing more movies this year than the studios are, in fact. And Richard Welsh is asking, is there any sense that local content will essentially take over in the long run the box office numbers? Paul, I guess that, you know, I don't know if that's a question you can answer. Yeah, in terms of local content, I think obviously in China right now, local content is doing incredibly well. But to address the streaming part of this, I think streamers understand the importance of the theatrical experience, the prestige, the exclusivity of it. And that's great content. And I think what we're going to see in the future and when Charlotte and and Oliver talk about innovation, they're absolutely right. I think we're going to see innovation. Obviously, we're already seeing that in the movie theater. We're going to see more of that in terms of the environment within the theater. Imagine like a reinvention of that uh, indoor space in a movie theater, way to make people feel really safe and secure. But beyond that, I think it just shows the importance of the big screen. And I think there's this sentiment out there, and this has been going on since March when the theaters closed on March 20, that now is the time that the industry, the big screen exhibition industry has been sidelined. Now streaming is going to take over. And what happened? People went to the drive-in in huge numbers. Last year, we weren't even talking about the drive-in, which we need to correct that in the future because drive-ins are amazing. But it just shows you with all this content at home, we are social beings and we want to go out and we want to see a movie together, of course, now. And as was just said, I don't think that there's been any hot spots in movie theaters. And believe me, that would be reported very widely if that happened. That shows that Exhibition is doing everything that they can do and doing it correctly. As far as New York and L.A., we still want those to be open. I think out of an abundance of caution, those big cities remain closed. But just a quick piece here in our comp score data, people are traveling to, I don't know what you call it, closure adjacent cities. They're driving not only to the drive-ins, but they're driving to a county next door where they can go see a movie in a theater. That says a lot. That speaks volumes as to the power of cinema, the big screen brick and mortar experience and the drive-in experience and how important that is right now. And you queued up perfectly actually for the last slide I was going to ask of Charlotte because Omdia had some Incredible research only come out this morning, which caught my eye and just affirmed that, yes, we all love streaming and so on, but, you know, it's no substitute for cinema. So, Charlotte, could you talk us through the last slide, please? Absolutely. So we had a consumer panel and we asked them, would you be comfortable going to the cinema to watch Mulan? And I think the results are quite impressive for cinema. So some of my colleagues who sort of reported on this were reporting more on, on the VOD and the PVOD side. But, I mean, if you look at the slides and you look at the data, the first three tiers are the most exciting. These are the people who would be willing to pay to watch Mulan, whether it's in cinemas or whether it's in the home. And of those, 
I think the average is 70% would choose to pay for that premium experience in the cinema. That is a testament to cinemas. It's a testament to all the investment that's gone in into the infrastructure, some of the premium screens. I think we have to take that away as, as very good news. No, it was. And, and really, the numbers were quite stark because we had, it was a factor of three to one of people who would pay to see it in the cinema. Some of those would pay in the first weekend, others would go within the month. But you know, the overall number compared to the people who would pay for it at a premium video service was three to one pretty consistently across the world. Apart from China, where I think it was 5% would pay to watch it premium video on demand. And more than 50% preferred cinema. So the appetite for cinema there is even stronger. But Yes. So again, looking at those, those top three bars, and these are the people who are interested in paying for the content. So a very small proportion of those. It depends on the market. So around 6% in China. I think that's because they don't really have a strong investment that we do in streaming services. It's higher sort of in, in the UK, actually, it was the highest that would that would rather pay for it in the home. But on average, of, of the collective that would pay for the experience, I mean, that's 70% for cinema. So, you know, that's, that's certainly a strong message to take away. And really, the numbers there show also, most people want to see it in the cinema. Next big bunch of people who wouldn't pay and would only watch it on a regular streaming service and just a minority who would want to pay a premium buck to see it now. But Sperling, if we have time for any final question from the audience, if not, we're going to be wrapping it up with the panelists here. One question we could ask Kimberly uh, Fru from, uh, I think it's Trafalgar releasing. I could be wrong about that, but she's asking about event cinema. But uh, we also have one here from Tom Burt, which is, are we going to run out of titles? Are we going to eat everything in the freezer, so to speak, before 2022 shows up? That's uh, a great but, question, by the way, because, you know, production, we haven't uh, touched on that yet. It, it, production is impacted and that's affecting the small screen platforms and the big screen. But, you know, the creative community, the folks out there behind the camera and in front of the camera are getting really innovative with that. But it's a great question because 2021 is loaded with titles. And what happens in 2022? Well, I think the answer to that is we're going to have more content. It's just going to be created in a different way because movie making is obviously a communal endeavor with a lot of people working together. But you know, it's movie magic, right? They'll figure it out. But that's a great question because this affects the chain, the supply chain, if you will. I hate to refer to movies like a widget because they're not. But, you know, you have to have movies to feed these platforms, whether they be big screen or small screen. I guess the answer is we have to wait and see. But I'm sure more people are writing than ever before. And more people are creating content that will resonate and will reflect what's going on in the world right now. So there's going to be some really, I think, very interesting content coming up for the big screen and the small screen, and the consumer will be the beneficiary of that. And I want to put final question to Ollie because this is probably something on all of our minds as we look forward to 2021, which is, is Coca-Cola going to be there in Barcelona at Cine Europe, which we all think and hope, you know, is going to be the big one where we're going to be meeting up in person again. And I'd like to add to that before you answer, Ollie. Can Coca-Cola help cinemas relaunch? So a two-part question. Yeah, no small ask. Okay, so the first one is, I bloody hope so. I definitely miss being in Cine Europe. And I think that's the thing that's really been missing this year is that element of human contact. So I really hope so. And yeah, absolutely. On the reopening, Sperling, I think, you know, we've absolutely got a role to play as a partner with our customers, with the industry to use our brands to get people back in and really get that that habit of cinema going, you know, fully established and, and hopefully get back to a really great year in 2021. Are there any plans for that now or, or are they in the works? 
So at the moment, because of what's going on, the plans are pretty agile. We had some plans that might move and a lot of it is kind of country by country. So I think that's probably the way it will be because we have, I guess, such moving parts at the moment. But yeah, so, you know, open like never before. You know, we are activating with some cinema partners across Europe. But yeah, more on that. And speaking of moving parts, that wraps it up for this part of the CJ Cinema Summit. Before we move on to our next panel, so I'd quickly like to thank Ollie, Charlotte, and Paul for being such you know great panelists as always. Thank you for coming on board. And we definitely hope to have you back again soon. Still talking about positive news. So thank you, guys and girls. Thank you. As we transition to the next panel and we quickly reshuffle chairs here on stage. That moves us along into our second session. I'm going to first introduce Rolando Rodriguez, who everybody knows as the president and CEO of Marcus Theatres. But now I've been told that I am allowed to announce that you're going to be kind of adding to your role because, you know, you don't have enough to do, Rolando. So uh, you have been, and I'm going to get this completely wrong. You are now basically, I don't want to say taking over NATO, but you are elected as the NATO chairman, vice chairman. What's going on there? So I'm the new elected chairman of the National Association of Theater Owners. Congratulations. Now, I guess the one question would be, given this year, was that a tag you're it? Or, uh, you know, I'm hoping that it's all uh, a set of good news, that it's the start of uh, coming out of a J curve and for the industry to come back alive. So I'm looking at it on a, on a glass half full and we're going to make a lot of progress. Well, first of all, congratulations again. You know, we know you're going to do a great job and, and we're definitely seeing the glass half full or rather the cold glass half full. In our <laughs> but it's not the only guest we have, so I'd like to welcome also to the virtual stage, Tim Richards, CEO and Chair of View International. And Tim, I know that you've just had a big anniversary, so happy 20th to you. <laughs> Thank you. And finally, also welcoming to the stage, we have Ashley Blake. Now, Ashley, could you introduce yourself? Because most people from at least the international cinema world might not know you as well as your distinguished colleagues here. Yeah, no problem. So I have two hats on today. Uh, so firstly, I run a leisure property fund here in the UK, and we have uh, several hundred million pounds worth of investments in leisure properties. So we've owned quite a few cinemas in the UK and have cinemas in our portfolio now, but also everything from mini golf to bars to restaurants, virtual reality, bingo halls. So quite a range of leisure property. And I'm also chairman of the Leisure Property Forum which is an industry body here in the UK that represents leisure operators, leisure developers, banks, consultants. As you can imagine, it's a very busy time for us right now. Super busy, I'm sure. And I want to get to that because we want to hear about and see how the dialogue is going to go between you know, the property owners, the landlords and the cinemas. But let me turn it over, first of all, to Tim. How's your summer been? What, what have you kept you busy? And more seriously, though, what is going on right now? Because I know you've been interviewed by everybody. So thank you for taking the time and coming on here. And I know that you've got, you know, a difficult, challenging time ahead. And what are the options really ahead of you? And, and what is the situation for you right now? Well, I think, I mean, like everybody else, we were kind of struck through the COVID period and the lockdown period, kind of a little bit in shock. And then we rolled up our sleeves and started working on, on getting back and getting up and running again. And we invested very heavily. And the we is kind of the collective we as an industry. We all did. We invested very heavily in new technologies, new operating systems to accommodate social distancing. We, we invested in training for our staff for safety issues. And we invested in the actual infrastructure to ensure 
a safe experience for all of our customers, something that we all did collectively. We did all that on the basis of movies coming in, opening up in originally July and then August and then September, ultimately with Tenet. And, you know, as we've all experienced, you know, they've been dropping units and, you know, one after the other, whether it be Wonder Woman or Black Widow or Mulan. And then most recently, last Friday, you know, the big body blow was was Bond. And that was unexpected for all of us. And I think that, you know, we had had discussions collectively, you know, reasonably frequently. And I don't think we really saw that coming. Always going to be a risk. But since then, we've really been regrouping and trying to work out how we get through this period. And we know there's this incredible slate of films that everyone's been talking about. It's real. They're there. They've been time shifted. And we just, as an industry, we've got to find a way somehow to get through this period. And I think the difficult part is when's it going to end? January, February, March, November, December, no one knows. And, and, And I think we're all tired of all these false starts. And we need to find a time and we need to work collectively, and this is with the studios, to get a release schedule that we can rely on, that we can bank on, so we know what's going to happen. And, and I think as an industry, we need to do that. And the studios have to play that part, and they've got to commit to something. It doesn't matter whether it's January, February, or March, but we've got to make those preparations as an industry to get ready during that time. Roland, do you have any thoughts on that as well? Yes, actually. First of all, let me say hello to Tim. I miss seeing you at Center Europe this year, so hopefully we'll have an opportunity coming up next year. But, you know, certainly my regards to you and and your teams out there. Look, I I think that Tim pointed to several key notables for us. And very similar, I would say, in the U.S. and North America, there's been a lot of work that's been done. on. In fact, we coined a strategic clean and safe concept called Cinema Safe that over 33,000 screens in the United States have signed on to, in particular indicating not only to the consumers, but to the governmental agencies, the importance of not only cinema, the entertainment aspect, but the fact that it's safe and, and ideally we've taken all the precautionary measures to ensure that people can come back to the theaters. Now, as Tim noted, we need the films. And I think that Part of our challenge that we've been working on, and in fact, this week, there were meetings uh, that were held by uh, the Global Cinema Federation. It's basically, you know, worldwide talking about this particular topic. We had our National Association of Theater Owners meetings this week as well. In fact, yesterday. And UNIC is obviously extremely involved as well. So we're all working collectively to obviously ensure that governmental agencies and Hollywood understands the importance of this incredible art that if we don't get it going again, there's a risk that many of our friends, especially small businesses across the world, people that have built their lives on this and communities that will be impacted, consumers that will be impacted and associates that will be impacted, you know, is is very drastic. So I would tell you that one of the pleas and one of the elements that we discussed quite a bit at the National Association of Theater Owners yesterday was the importance, no different than worldwide, there's key cities across the world that are very meaningful from a media perspective, from a trend perspective. And so if you were to think about London, Paris, 
Madrid, you know, just to name a few. Or you think about obviously New York and LA in the US. Well, part of the opportunity that we're facing right now as an industry is that New York happens to be one of the few states that is still remains closed. And we have two out of 48 states in the United States that are closed, one being New York, the other one being New Mexico. But in particular, the focus is on New York. Why? Because obviously it's kind of a media hub. It's part of the entertainment component. It's part of the movie-going experience. And it's creating tremendous challenges with the studios wanting to release the rest of the, the film product. So our plea, not only to Governor Como, but frankly to all of our friends worldwide, is that we need to engage, and we have been engaging with Governor Como for months now, talking about our cinema safe, talking about all of the safety measures that we're willing to take. And I think he's starting to understand that his decision is impacting the movie industry worldwide. It's not just in the U.S. It's a worldwide issue. And so we're encouraging him that all the safe steps he's taken to protect the consumers out there, we have taken equal to more steps in protecting them and we're hoping that the, he'll allow the theaters to reopen. And back to Tim's point, give us the opportunity for the film companies to truly set a slate that we can depend on, and it's not moving on a regular basis. So one of our key components at NATO, at UNIC, at Global Cinema Federation, is to get New York open. And number two, ensuring that we have a locked-in film slate on a sustainable basis, not just one movie or one hope. And frankly, in the U.S., Tim, we're hoping very hard that we don't lose Thanksgiving. And that's the tail end of November. So we're really working hard on how do we hang on to the movies like Soul and Crudes 2, and then obviously lead us into the December with Wonder Woman. I want to pick you up on that point and, and throw it over to Tim as well, because obviously that is a paramount one in, in people's minds. And I know that cinema owners in general have been very understanding of the dilemma by the distributors in terms of releasing these $200 million titles. But we will have the trade bodies on in our final segment and we'll be talking to them. But question to Tim is, do you feel the message is getting through to the politicians that cinemas are safer than churches, bars, restaurants, and therefore whatever they do, they should think very carefully before imposing another mandatory lockdown on these kind of social venues? We've been lobbying very hard. I mean, we started very early on. I mean, we went through SARS in 2002, 2004 in Taiwan and our operations in Taiwan. We brought those operating protocols to Europe, tweaked them for the European marketplace. We started working with governments as early as April on how we can open up safely as a company, as an industry, we shared it with everybody. We shared all of our best practices with everyone. And we have managed to get that message across. And I know from my own personal work that I've been doing with the government in the UK, I mean, it's really interesting how they look at the environment. And their first cut, the first big cut, is standing versus sitting. Standing is kind of, you know, in Europe, pubs and bars and nightclubs and music concerts and maybe football games or sporting events and cinemas, we can control it. And we've managed to work very carefully and closely with the governments to demonstrate. And we've invited them over to our cinemas. We've shown them, you know, we can control how many people are in our foyer through film programming. We can control 
how they come in and how they come out of our cinemas and we tweak our operating systems so that they create social distancing instantly. That together with the PPE and, and, and other initiatives that we've been taking, you know, we have demonstrated that together with the massive amount of research that we've been undertaking, exit surveys from our customers through our internet service and through other mechanisms and schemes, we have over 80%, well over 80% of our customers feel safe and comfortable in our cinemas. And they feel safe and comfortable enough that they would recommend it to a friend or family member. And that's a huge endorsement. And we've taken that all to the government. And that's one of the reasons why in the UK, as an industry, we were able to get excluded from the 10 o'clock cutoff rule. So if you go into a restaurant or pub right now in the UK, they start knocking on your table at 9.30, halfway through your bottle of wine. But as a cinema, you can go and buy a ticket at five minutes to 10 and enjoy a full run of the film right through to the end. So the message is getting through, but we have to keep delivering that message. Well, one of the messages that you had, Rolando, was about the film slate. Tim, you mentioned it as well. Right now, that film slate is being dictated, ironically, by Netflix, because they're the ones releasing films in cinemas. There's going to be a little bit of a truce between, say, Netflix and cinemas, and certainly Universal, everybody knows with what they've done with Trolls, and there's been a lot of talk about the 17-day window. So has there been any talk, at least for a short term, of a little bit of a, a temporary a temporary truce of maybe playing films that are out on uh, PVOD as well or out on VOD? Tim, has there been an update on that? I would argue there's no truce because there's no war. We're not at war with Netflix. You know, Netflix, I think, do an amazing job, and they look after everybody who wants to sit in their couch and watch something on their television. That's not our business. So I've never looked at them as a competitor. And look, and I, I've got a Netflix subscription like everybody else does, and I think some of their TV shows are absolutely extraordinary. But, you know, I would challenge anybody to tell me the last decent movie they saw on Netflix. They don't have them. And they're very, very rare. And I know that we looked, you know, maybe that's the model that we could look at seriously. And we looked at everything that's out there and you, there's just nothing you'd really want to show on our screens. And, you know, you could probably find an exception or two, but generally as a rule, there's not much you'd want to show there. But I think, look, it, it comes down to windows. And I think as an industry, we probably have been guilty of being maybe overly rigid sometimes with Windows. And we have tried and tried as an industry. I mean, I've sat on three or four working groups in the UK, the government-led ones, trying to find a solution to Windows. It's incredibly complicated. But I think, you know, I can say for us as a company, you know, we're looking at this. This is one ecosystem. We're all in this together. And, I mean, we're going to be showing an element of flexibility going forward. And that doesn't mean a panic one. We're not going to be suddenly day is night. But I mean, certainly tweaking around the edges, I think it's something that it's healthy to have that discussion as an industry. Rolando, what about yourself? Is there any room for talk about, even whether it's temporary or not, evolving on Windows, at least during this time period? I think I'll echo some of Tim's comments on there. Number one, we're certainly not in a war with Netflix. It's two different types of venues and two different types of systems. And certainly would equate to what they're known for as their series. In many cases, and, and certainly bringing back some of the classic programming that, that works for them. 
look, we're a large screen format. We are about seeing the big screen, about enjoying a social experience in a safe environment. You know, the, the flexibility associated with the windows, that's an ongoing discussion. And I think we'll figure it out, hopefully in, in the coming months, about what is the right antidote for it. I think what we've seen is kind of a difficult time period to figure out what Windows really does or doesn't do in a time period like this, right? Because you really don't have the theaters running for the most part, and you don't see them with the film products running. I think that most of the film companies recognize the importance of the theatrical window. Look, we were a $42 billion plus industry worldwide last year. So when you start thinking about that, how do you replace that? If you're not careful, you could, in essence, try to replace that into the other channels that, at least so far, hasn't been proven to be the case, even in a time period where the theaters have been shut down. So the economics really haven't shown yet that that's necessarily the way to go. Now, as Tim indicated, should that window be looked at differently? Absolutely. I think, are there flexibility to talking about what that could look like? Sure. What that should be, that's the discussion that's currently taking place and will continue to take place, I think, in the coming months. Well, and that's actually an update because uh, previously a lot of the conversation has been around that there are no conversations. Now, we have a question coming in that might be for Ashley, although it very easily could be for Rolando because I know uh, Marcus Theaters owns some dine-in cinemas. And Alex Acosta says, last week, the dude from Sinopolis, I guess, I don't know who that was, I mentioned that dine-in cinemas have a lower operating cost and that maybe this could be the new standard moving forward. Likewise, Alex goes on to ask that some cinemas have movie theaters and bowling alleys under the same roof. Are we going to start seeing kind of a combination of dine-in cinemas, bowling alleys, kind of multi-use cinemas? Ashley, I guess I'll, I'll throw it over to you because you're dealing with all the real estate. Yeah, I mean, we have had some of this in the past, and I know there are some operators in the UK who are looking at this at the moment. My personal view is that on the whole, as a, as a landlord, we like to have best-in-class operators. So, you know, I would like to have a superb bowling alley operator and a superb cinema operator. And certainly, if you have too much dining in in the cinema, then you're going to suck business out of the surrounding restaurants. The cinema is part of an ecosystem for us. And, you know, the restaurants support the cinema, the other users. We often have people going between our different venues on an evening. So doing it all in one big box has often been the dream of a few entrepreneurs. But we've also found that many of our customers don't want to be in one box for the whole evening. They do want to explore different parts of an area of an estate to make the evening more interesting and more diverse for them. So it hasn't really taken off yet. I remain skeptical. But there are still entrepreneurs looking at doing it. Following up with that, Ashley, it must be a strange situation for property developers and owners to be looking at release schedules, familiarizing themselves with what films are coming out, but also how that's now going to impact their business, having sort of assumed a, a steady stream of content. So given that and the fact that, you know, the biggest outgoing for cinemas in the absence of films and if they're keeping staff numbers short is the rent. So what kind of discussions are you having, is the industry having, should the industry be having moving forward? Well, it should be having discussions because for a lot of my career until about seven years ago, I ran and did investments on shopping centres. And I consider cinemas to be the department stores 
of leisure schemes, particularly 100% leisure schemes. And in shopping centres, cinemas are the other anchor for the department store. And the way the department store is going, they might be a more important anchor in future. So there's really uh, four things that landlords can do. Immediately, we can try and reduce the operating costs, the sort of service charges that we have. And during the lockdown here that we had for three months, uh, most landlords hopefully hacked those down and passed on savings to people. We can try and support the tenants around the cinema as well. So, I mean, if, if the restaurants go bust around that cinema, there's not going to be the ecosystem to help the cinema when they come out the other end. We can do marketing, of course, to support them. But you're right, the big ticket one is the rent. And most landlords in the UK, hopefully, have been engaging with their tenants. And certainly, I and other landlords like me have been doing various deals, mutual deals, so rent deferments, rent extensions in return for rent waivers and rent freeze to try and help the tenants through. But we have the same problem the operators have. We don't know how long this is going to last for. And you're right. In my investor presentations, I often talk about new releases coming up, but it was always the fun section of the investor presentation. Now it's a really critical part. And I spent Sunday morning writing copious notes to my investors about bond, about what that meant, because you're right, it's a big issue for us. So I think all business owners have the challenge of how long does this support have to last? How long do I need to ask my investor, my bank to help me support my tenants for? Is it six months? Is it four months? And that's that's the bit that's difficult to, to get your head around and to forecast for. Well, we have a question coming in, speaking of, of forecasting, from Grant Riley and kind of playing off the rent question, I suppose. Has COVID-19 put the brakes on any capital programs, you know, building cinemas, investing in the space? I guess it's, it's really for Tim and Rolando. That said, what is going on with capital? What is going on with your conversations with landlords? Not specifically, but are you having conversations with landlords? And what about uh, capital expenditures in the future, Tim? If you believe in the longevity of the business, which I think we all do, we took advantage of the lockdown period to actually refurbish a number of our sites and roll out recliner seats and other sites so that when we opened up, we'd be ready to go with something even kind of newer and more exciting for our customers. I think it's fair to say right now today, with what's happened to us in the last month or two with movies being shifted, it's a belt tightening moment. And I think CapEx has had to stop. I mean, I know that we discuss liquidity issues probably an hour, every hour, every day. And it's how do we get through this period and how do we get through as a strong company through this period. But up until that point, we were continually investing in the business because that is part of the future of what we all have to look forward to. Rolando, what about yourself? Is capital expenditures going to be put on hold? Are you talking to landlords? I think actually Marcus probably owns most of its properties. But you know, what about CapEx and in re- re- investing in either new or existing cinemas? So if you don't mind, I'll try to tie in part of the last question into this, because I think that they both kind of connect with one another. And in particular, one of the things that I should say, you know, what are the priorities for the industry at this point in time, right? And where do we focus our efforts first and foremost? And I think we've kind of touched on those. Number one, we need to get the theaters open, we need to get the markets open, and we need to get film, right? Those are probably if you were to think about the prioritization of what needs to happen, which will then impact landlords, right? And will impact, obviously, capital expenditures and the outlook for the industry. 
So when you tie that into Windows as an example, over the last decade, I actually have a chart that shows the declining in per capita attendance attending the movies with the shortening of the window. And those all come together, right? Because the reality is, as you negotiate what that world will look like in the future, and when we come to terms with that, it will impact not only our business, but it will impact the landlords. It will impact our ability to ensure that we have viable businesses well into the future. And obviously, when you think about the priorities right now, get the industry open, get the films on a sustainable basis. You know, if you think about Windows, Windows is not necessarily, in my mind, one of the top priorities. I think those two up front we need to focus on. Then, to Tim's point, obviously, the capital and liquidity associated with all the companies and NATO, we just got through surveying our members. Very sadly to see, which impacts folks like Ashley, is that 69% of the independent and mid-sized circuits that were surveyed, they have liquidity issues and they will become even more drastic by the end of the year. That's in the U.S. So when you think about those numbers, those become fairly frightening about what do we do and where is the investments? And then frankly, we're in a situation of preserving cash, ensuring that we can you know, get to the theaters reopening, getting the films marketed, getting the consumer confidence rebuilt. And then obviously the capital investment is a must. In Marcus itself, we've been very fortunate. The fact that we own the majority of our assets that puts us in a different type of place as most of our other fellow exhibitors out there. So it gives us a lot more flexibility. But on the other hand, frankly, no different than everybody else. Most of our locations, right, are open, but again, limited films and limited revenues coming through the door. So we are on a capital conservation mode where we need to spend it. We absolutely do. But I would say that projects such as thinking about further entertainment concepts that are tied into theaters. And I know that was also noted about the food and beverage concepts. We're heavily into that. You know, those concepts have viability and they certainly have an attraction to the consumer. But again, I go back to what are the top priorities that we need to focus on? And it goes back to getting the markets open, getting all the theaters open, getting the sustainable film slate and then we can continue to tackle the rest. That's a great message to the industry and to the politicians and everybody who should be listening. We have to wrap up. Unfortunately, we've got one more session to go where we're going to hear from the trade bodies from John Fithy at NATO, Laura and Phil from Munich and UKCA. But before we go to turn over any final words from both Tim and Ashley as well. So Tim, any final words really to the industry as, as we now move ahead? I think as an industry, We've been fighting a bit of a losing battle with the press. And for anyone who's been in the industry for as long as a lot of us have, we've seen that story before. And and I think we need to all try our best to continue to believe and wave that flag. And I think the one area, I mean, obviously economics and survival is critical. I mean, that, that has to be the beginning. But I think that we need to also emphasize on the importance that we are to a community the importance that we are to high streets, to main streets. We drive footfall and pedestrians to our main streets. We drive footfall into the shopping centers. We're anchor tenants. We're social hubs where families can go out together. And we know from studies that were done last summer at UCL 
that there's also mental well-being issues. I mean, going to a cinema is actually a healthy thing to do, particularly during difficult times like right now. And I think we need to try and get that side of the message out as well as the economic side, because it's a more compelling message, particularly for politicians right now who are trying to demonstrate their constituents that there is something out there other than a lockdown. And we're, we're going to try and stay open for as long as we possibly can. Ashley, you're not giving up on cinemas as uh, clients and partners, are you? No, not at all. And I agree with what Tim has said. I also think it's important for investors like me to keep pushing the message with banks, other investors, that actually cinema is not a zombie industry. It's, it's a business that was flying before uh, COVID hit. It's been hit by a natural disaster. And I'm very convinced it will bounce back afterwards. And it's easy for the journalists, isn't it, to sort of sell these stories about the cinemas dying and all the rest of it. But we've got to fight against that every day, not just with the public, but also with governments, banks, and other opinion formers. And I'd also say to operators out there that, you know, sometimes it can be a little bit intimidating to raise issues with your landlord, to, to talk to them. But I would say, you know, approach them, be transparent, share what information you can. As landlords understand the position you're in, I think you'll find that they will work to try and help you because there's absolutely mutual benefits in the cinema industry surviving, both in shopping centres, high streets, leisure parks. And landlords have everything to gain from working with you. But the more open you are, the more you communicate, the easier it will be to get help, basically. It's easy sometimes to, you know, to back off those conversations. But I would say communicate and engage and with my Leisure Property Forum hat on, we're trying to get all our members to keep talking in these difficult times, even when sometimes they can't actually have face-to-face -face meetings. Well, thank you very much, Ashley. That's a really good and important message. And I fully take Tim's point as well, that we have to do a better job getting the message out there to the media, to the public, about just what a vibrant industry cinema was right up until the point that COVID hit, and what a great future it still has ahead. So. Thank you very much, Rolando. Thank you very much, Ashley. And thank you very much, Tim, for coming on today. We now move on to the third, uh, but by no means least of the panel discussions, because the people who have been working tirelessly behind the scenes, we know that what cinemas have been doing in terms of you know getting back up, getting back open, getting people back in. But the people who are fighting battles on multiple fronts have been the trade bodies, because they have had to engage with all the stakeholders, not just the cinemas and the distributors, but also with the politicians, with the press, with us. And they have very kindly agreed to appear today, all three of them from you know across the world, stretching from North America to Europe and beyond. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome onto stage Bill Clapp, John Fithian, and Laura Holgaard. So thank you very much for joining us today. Laura, if I can start off with you, what's it been like being asked to just basically save the entire industry? I can put that on my CV for sure and on my LinkedIn. That would be my next step. It's been, I feel like for everyone, it's been uh, it's been crazy times. It's been a huge challenge. Uh, obviously, we've you know tried to do our best to help serve our members and make sure that we can all see the other side of 2020. Let it be for you know advocating governments and European institutions for support making sure that cinemas remain on top of the agenda, talking with the studios, talking with distributors, you know, sharing good experiences and best practices when it comes to protocols and guidelines, 
campaigns. I mean, it's been covering a whole range of topics. And I was trying to remember what life was before March 2020, and it was certainly very different. But I think it really highlighted the value of trade bodies like ours. It does feel like 100 years ago, and somebody's put it very well. We're living in telescopic time, where each day goes on forever, and then suddenly weeks and months go by. But focusing on today, Phil Clapp, I mean, we're trying to keep up with news as we speak in the UK with pubs shutting in Scotland, I think, today or tomorrow. And, and sort of you must be in daily, almost daily contact with authorities in terms of trying to remind them that cinemas are not bars. Yeah. And, you know, to add to our fun, we've got four different governments to deal with in the UK because coronavirus is seen as a public health issue. So therefore is dealt with in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland by the governments there rather than the Westminster government. I think Laura said a good deal of the value that trade bodies bring. But, you know, what's come through, I think, particularly during this period is the role of trade bodies for smaller operators. We're comparatively fortunate in that we have a route into government and, you know, quite often the officials are playing catch up in terms of the announcements by the politicians and the ministers. If you're a small single screen operator, you know, operating in a rural area or whatever, then you really don't have without the network which is provided by the trade body to rely on, you really don't have the intelligence to be able to rely on the understanding of what these things mean. You know, Tim said that Netflix weren't the opponents, but the, we've been in a constant battle with information essentially, to get that out to people so they understand what they need to do. And, you know, we've, we've, I think we've been quite successful. Tim referred to it. You know, we've managed to differentiate ourselves from, you know, kind of bars and restaurants. So we have a carve out from the curfew in the UK. And, you know, even where there are local restrictions, there are very few examples of where cinemas are actually part and party of those. They tend to be seen, thankfully, quite rightfully, as places which are safe. But you're absolutely right, you know, no one knew the good times, how good they were when they were. And I think, you know, we have to be confident that we will overcome this and we have to be confident we'll overcome this collectively. And, and when I say that, and this is something I, you know, um, I was in discussion about this week, this is not just about cinema operators. This is about the broad ecology of partners, including studios, including distributors. They all rely on each other. And in terms of that discussion with government, we need to, as well as the community, as well as the cultural, we need to remind them of the economic value of the cinema sector. And of course, the economic value of cinema operators is huge, but even huger is that of the broader industry. Well, last but not least, I'll introduce John Fithy, and I think he really needs no introduction, but of course, the president and CEO of NATO. And we have so many questions coming in from the attendees. I don't know how we're going to get to them. We probably won't. But one of my favorite questions, as John knows, and he will probably hate that I'm mentioning the word paramount decree, I think I actually get paid based on how many times I get to say paramount decree in my life, because we have one here from Adam McDonald. There, there's a lot of these questions. I'm just going to post one, which is, will we see a return to studios and now media companies ownership of major cinema circuits? We, there's questions about Amazon and Apple buying cinema chains. John, thank you for joining us. Welcome. And, you know, an easy one to start off. Paramount decree. How, how bad could that be? Well, before we touch on Paramount, I'd just like to echo what Phil and Laura said. I mean, as trade body leaders, uh, we've spent years dealing with things that we thought were existential, uh, government regulation and relationships with the studios and technology definitions. And wow, running into this pandemic in March, uh, we had no idea what existential truly meant. 
And so like my colleagues in the UK and, and in Brussels, we're fighting to open cinemas in the US safely with the right protocols. We are working with our governments for aid and assistance. And we're dealing with the studios on the film slate and its releases, because if those three things all don't happen together, the crisis is existential and, and we just hope to get to the other side. Which takes me back to the specifics of your question about Paramount and who might own theater companies in the near future. There's going to be substantial restructuring in the theater industry over the next year. Uh, we truly don't know how many are going to survive and thrive coming back up on the other side or who's going to own them. I doubt that the major studios are going to try to jump in and buy cinema companies, although I guess it's possible. Netflix flirted with it for a while, but they stated recently they really don't want to get into that sector. So my guess is it's it's going to be some or most of the current operators who come back up on the other side in 2021, or some combination of them, or some new group of investors that realizes that when this pandemic is under control, people will come out of their houses with fervor to get back into cinemas in greater numbers than they're going right now because they want to come back to the cinema, that the studios want to give us their films back theatrically. 80% of the movies that were scheduled during the pandemic have been postponed for later theatrical release and not taken to the home. So we know on the other side, it's going to be fine and perhaps return to record-breaking numbers again. We just need to get there. I'm going to summarize some of the questions that are coming in because we have so many of them. And we're getting a lot of questions about government aid. I guess this is a question for, you know, you're all dealing with governments. But I know that there has been a lot of talk about uh, going to the U.S. government for aid in the CARES Act and now whatever they're coming up with for the next phase. And what is the reluctance of the U.S. government? What reluctance are you facing with legislators? Are you having cinema operators speak with them? We hear that maybe one reason they don't want to pick a winner or loser in industries. John, what are you facing in dealing with Washington? In the United States, in our government, we have a different challenge than our European colleagues. In Europe, they seem to get the fact that culture is important <laughs> and there are not easier access points. I know Phil and Laura are working their tails off on government assistance, but at least the idea of preserving culture means something as a government priority. In Washington, D.C., it's much more of a free enterprise, laissez-faire, keep your hands off, see who wins and loses attitude. And so we are up against that in a big way. Nonetheless, the hit on the economy and the hit on our workers has been so dramatic that our Congress has indeed listened. In earlier legislation, we had some good, forgivable loan programs that worked particularly well for some of our smaller members. We also had unemployment compensation aid for our 150,000 furloughed workers. So at the beginning of the fight, there were some helping hands from the government, if you will. But we need a lot more. And I apologize for missing the first hour of this program. We are negotiating government relief package as we speak. And the question is whether or not President Trump and the Congress can come together on a broad-based agreement or whether or not they'll just single out an industry like the airlines for assistance. So we're lobbying like crazy. We had a great letter with 93 leading filmmakers to the congressional leaders asking to help us. The directors are making calls. The studio executives are making calls. We're generating grassroots by the hundreds of thousands of emails and letters from movie fans all across the country. And, and we'll see. Our government is not functioning very well in the United States, as you might have read. So it is a challenge. Laura, what are you doing on the EU side? 
So on the EU side, we're of course working and in hand with our national trade bodies when they're advocating their own government, you know, to get support money. And we're using examples. There's nothing better than actually going to government and showing what somebody else is doing and saying they consider that it is important to support and save their cinemas. So France is probably the best to this date because they have decided to dedicate 80 millions this year, starting now, to support their cinemas and to save them, all their cinemas. So starting with that example and just going around to our members with this is really helpful because that's what they use then to talk to their own finance minister or culture minister. We're also trying to explain that governments can support our industry because there are a number of state aid rules that exist in the EU, but they do not apply to the audiovisual industry. So actually governments sometimes are using this as an excuse saying, well, I can't do that because Brussels is going to punish me. And we're just going there and saying, that's not true. So if you really want to, you can. And then at EU level, so really with the European institutions, there is a big recovery plan that is in the process of being adopted. It's a huge amount of money to support the national governments and the member states to recover. And we have been pushing extremely hard to ensure that each country was going to set aside an amount specifically for the cultural sector and, of course, even more specifically for cinemas. So that's one part of our work when we are actually dealing with government support and with EU support. When there is an announcement like the pushing forward of the Bond film, and then on its heels we get the announcement that Cineworld is shutting down temporarily And that makes the front page or the top of the app news app here in the UK. Is that message being heard loud and clear in the government? And does the government listen in the UK, at least Westminster government, and take note and and hopefully take action, Phil? Well, we hope so. And, And we're certainly in active conversations with the UK government around further financial support, particularly for the larger operators. I mean, the situation in the UK is that the smaller operators have been allocated funding. In England, that's £30 million to try and put them, you know, kind of almost put the damage of COVID right, although I don't know how you do that. But clearly with an ever-moving film slate, even for those guys, there's a very big question over whether that's enough money. There's been, a, I think, a a belief until now within government that the larger operators are somehow different and the larger operators can be dealt with just with generic business support. And while that was probably true when all cinemas were closed, so we had a very widespread furlough scheme, we had a business rates, so, so local business tax holiday, et cetera, et cetera. The challenge that all cinemas face now, or well, 80% of cinemas in the UK face now, is they're open, but they're trading at such low levels that they're not sustainable in the medium term. Undoubtedly, you know, it's not a route you would choose, but the announcement around Cineward and Picture House set various hairs running within the UK government, both in terms of the politics of this, but also in terms of the PR of this. But I think, you know, one of the things we need to get over to government, and actually we need to get over to certainly in the UK, many in the press, is that there can be a belief that should God help us, you know, any of the multiplex operators fall, that the independent sector will either step in to fill that gap or will still be sustainable. You know, you need a critical mass of the cinema business in every territory in order for these things to work. And, you know, it's been very reassuring to me, you know, that during a time of maximum stress, the number of smaller operators who've reached out to 
particularly colleagues at Sydney Warden Picture House, but I think to the, you know, the, the larger end of the market in general, and express sympathy and express support. You know, we are genuinely all in this together. And almost the worst thing we can do is allow those who, you know, not necessarily oppose us, but don't necessarily, you know, kind of support us to allow the sector to be divided. But certainly, I think you need to understand that at a time like this, any government is getting a whole range of different requests from a whole range of business sectors, whether it's retail or hospitality, whether it's travel. And you need to be absolutely sure of your case. You need to be absolutely sure of why they should care about you. And sometimes, as you know, John and, and Laura have said, it comes down to the local. But actually, you know, there is also a very big macroeconomic argument to make about the value of the industry. You know, and again, I would say not just the cinema operators, but the broader industry. So, you know, it's not a route, as I say, you would choose to go down, but you need to take advantage of that and, and take your opportunity. And the other thing I'll say in the UK, which is almost unique, and I've been in the job for quite a while now, it's almost unique, is the extent to which talent has stepped forward and has offered its services or offered its support in terms of supporting the cinema sector. To be perfectly frank, we've always struggled to get talent involved. I think they find the exhibition sector is slightly complicated, but actually for the first time we've got A-list talent and other talent, I won't tell which is which, coming forward and wanting to be helpful. So I think we understand, you know, John used the phrase existential. I think that's actually a very accurate phrase of where we are at the moment. And, you know, without getting too gloom-ridden about it, you know, we need to be absolutely clear with government about what our ask is. Well, we're getting so many questions about how French aid is being targeted, questions, of course, about release windows. One question that came up, if, if not governments, could it possibly be the studios? And so we have Juan Rivera here who is asking, you know, are there any talks about having studios financially help out with exhibitors? What are your conversations like with studios? And John, if you could give us like a transcript, that would be great. You know, word for word, blow by blow. I'm sure they're, they're very intense. Yeah, so I don't think the studios are going to help us out financially, folks. Quite the opposite in, in some ways, but they're helping out in so many other ways, right? They are trying very hard to keep a film slate together. We're in discussions with them all the time about that. They're helping us in our lobbying and our outreach by making important statements about their movies staying theatrical. They are suggesting to the world that the theatrical business model is the best for their bottom lines. And they're kind of in it with us, if you will, and they're, they're hurting financially as well. So I, I wouldn't ask a studio for a financial grant program, but they are helping us in almost every possible way. Well, another question that came in was about CinemaSafe, plans to increase the, the marketing for it. And Phil, you mentioned that you have some you know, celebrities lined up to help promote the reopening of cinemas. Is there a way for distributors and exhibitors to come together for a huge initiative for reopening cinemas once there's a vaccine? And is that being worked on, John? So take the question in two parts. First on CinemaSafe, I think all exhibitor associations and leaders around the world are focused on the health and safety for both our patrons and for our employees, right? And so in the United States, we worked for several months with leading epidemiologists to design a program called CinemaSafe. And then we have hundreds and hundreds of our companies, virtually everyone, that signed up to adopt those protocols. And the idea is that you are telling the patrons, we've done everything possible to make this a safe return. And I'd point out that there's not a single reported case of a COVID outbreak at a cinema anywhere in the world, despite how uh, widely we have been open. 
So the first way the studio has helped us, at least in the States, is on designing the marketing and the outreach of our cinema safe protocols. And they were very engaged with us in that. We took several million dollars out of our reserve fund to promote it. And we're watching the numbers rise on the number of patrons who now understand it is safe to come back to cinemas. The second part of your question, which is marketing coming back out to cinemas, I know has already begun in Europe. Our decision in the United States was to bifurcate this outreach and to do the safety protocols first and then do the come back to cinema campaign later. The studios are very much involved with us in that second campaign as well, but they don't want to launch that second campaign until things stabilize a little bit in the United States, until we definitely have the movies on the slate, until we definitely have more people coming back into the cinema. That's probably because we did the poorest in dealing with the virus in the United States. Certainly there are spikes in pockets around the world, but our government in the U.S. was horrible in the way it addressed this virus. And so we just felt like we needed to promote safety and going back to cinemas first before we get to the broader marketing campaign of getting people back to cinemas. And I know that this week there were GCF meetings, there were NATO meetings, board meetings. And I guess this question is for anybody that attended, uh, whether it's Laura, Phil or John. Is there something that came out of that that you would want to relay to whether it's exhibitors or manufacturers or studios, what came out of those talks that might be constructive now? I guess I'll start with John. Well, why don't I take the NATO part of the question and let Phil take the GCF part of the question because he actually ran the GCF meeting. So uh, I'll defer to him on that one. On the NATO side, we just had our annual meetings the last couple of days with several hundred members joined in, in what typically would have been a face-to-face meeting in Los Angeles and was conducted awkwardly over Zoom. And some key priorities came out of those meetings, some key redirections of where we're spending our funding. And so we are trying to do two things in particular right now. We are trying desperately to get New York State to allow cinemas to open. New York is a very important market. It's not on a global basis a gigantic box office market, but New York's important for many other reasons. It's important because journalists work there, Wall Street analysts work there, film critics work there. And having cinemas closed in New York is really, really hurting our ability to keep films on the film slate. And every single studio I talk to about releasing movies yet this calendar year says, when's New York going to open? When is New York going to open? So first and foremost, we're hammering New York with a media plan, a grassroots plan, calls from talent, everything we can do to get that market open again safely. We have 48 states in the United States that are currently allow cinemas to open and only two that are closed everywhere. And that's New York and New Mexico. Clearly, New York is a primary target coming out of our meetings. And the other thing that we're focused on, of course, is our Congress and our leaf package. And we've, we've talked about that. So I'll let Phil tell you about the GCF. Thanks, Sean. So we had a, a kind of joint NATO GCF call in the week. And you know, I wouldn't underestimate the value of sharing experience during this period. Absolutely. As I said, you know, that for smaller operators in particular, the networks of information are important, but they're equally important for larger operators as well. And so learning lessons from other territories, understanding where other territories are, is hugely valuable. You will understand that a number of the questions that were asked on the, the GCF call were about the discussions we've had with colleagues in the studios. And I know, you know, in my own territory and, and in terms of my involvement with UNIC, and I'm sure, you know, that there, there is a body of opinion that we should be doing more shouting at studios. My own feeling is that gets us not very far for a number of reasons. One being that uh, quite often, even in, in the LA offices, but certainly in the, in the national offices, it's not these people making the decisions, they're the messengers. 
And you know what they say about messengers. But the other thing is, is that, you know, colleagues in distribution are our partners out of this, essentially. And so I think, you know, we need to continue to work with them. You know, we need to understand that actually this is a crisis which threatens many jobs in, in distribution as much as it does in exhibition. But, you know, certainly, you know, the role of the GCF as almost a kind of super trade body replicates the role of, you know, NATO, replicates the role of UNIC and replicates the role of, of other European national trade bodies. It's about sharing information. It's about getting fresh perspectives. We're not the sole keepers of the wisdom on any of this stuff. And, you know, again, I wouldn't actually underestimate the efforts involved in keeping people's spirits up. This is relentless for cinema operators. It's relentless for trade bodies. And, you know, actually having a shared understanding of where the situation is and having a shared vision on the horizon and recovery of the sector, I think is vitally important. And I'd like to hand over to Laura for some final thoughts, but also to plug that you've got the Unix Cinema Days coming up and there's going to be continuing of the conversations and covering of all the topics and more that we've spoken about today. So over to you, Laura. Thanks, Patrick. I think everything has been said, you know, in terms of final words, we've been working extremely hard to make sure that we support our cinemas and our members the best we can. We know what we need. We need content. We need a constant supply of content, diversity of content. We need support, financial support, because we will need to help our guys financially. And I think as John said, you know, let's look to 2021 as the year when we will recover. Let's also look at all the fantastic initiatives that have been carried out by cinemas, because I think it's also been an incredible period to show how committed, passionate and involved cinema operators and the staff were. So please go on our website because we have listed more than 800 initiatives carried out by cinemas. Let it be you know, big national campaign, but also smaller initiatives, how to make people feel safe, how to make people feel welcome, you know, local releases, etc. And indeed, I would welcome everyone to attend our cinema days next week, 12th and 13th of October. Thanks, Patrick, for taking part as well. We will talk about the road to recovery. We will talk about national campaigns. We will also talk about diversity, keeping in mind that some topics need to remain high on the agenda, even in this period. And frankly, I think people will get a lot out of it. So the more the merrier, you can find all the details on our website. We look forward to being part of it and seeing it as well. Just very quickly, we'd like to go over for some final thoughts from John, because you've still got a day ahead of you and you've still got a day tomorrow and all weekend. So I know you're going to be busy, but any final thoughts to share with our audience before we wrap it up? Well, thank you for convening this. And, and I want to echo something that Laura said. It is invigorating and stimulating the passion of our employees, the passion of the film directors in the creative community, the passion of anyone affiliated with the cinema, how that outpouring is helping us through these very difficult times. And it's just so reassuring to know that that many people in different walks of life care dramatically about the experience of leaving your home and going out to see a movie on the big screen with the big sound systems. And it's that passion that reaffirms for me the fact that we will come back up from this very strong in 2021. It is all of our efforts to get a bridge to get us there. But I know that the lifeblood and the interest in cinema going is very, very strong around the world. And there will be light at the end of the tunnel in 2021. We just got to keep trucking through the tunnel. So thank you for convening this event so that we can have a discussion together. 
Thank you very much for joining us. And Sperling, I don't know, is it too late for a write-in for John Fithian for president? Or, you know, I assume they probably want to keep him for president. You know, I just received my ballot in the state of California. And Kanye West is literally on the ballot in the state of California. I actually looked up, I was like, who's this Kanye Omari West? And I looked it up. It was Kanye West. I couldn't believe it. So, yeah, I'd, I'd say, why not? Now, we're getting a lot of questions about why we don't have distributors on. There's a number of reasons. One, you know, to get a distributor to speak, there's many, many levels of authority and levels of approval. We couldn't get that in such a short period of time, four days. We hope to have them on in future uh, sessions. We definitely want to keep the conversation going until next week and the week beyond that, because we will be coming back. We're not moving to 2021. So please, we're going to try to share some of the information, the articles, the things we talked about on the community forum, which is community.cjcinemasummit.com. But I just want to wrap up by really giving a huge thank you to Bill, Laura and John for taking the time out, you know, on this particularly difficult time in this week of all weeks. You know, this is really the time where the value of having a good trade association, of having strong industry leaders like them being able to speak on behalf of the industry. And they're so right. I mean, John is so right when he says, you know, cinema is a passion. Cinema is bigger than Bond. We love Bond, but cinema is more than just one film. Cinema isn't just a venue. It's something that unites us, something that makes us want to get out of the couch, leave our house and sit with strangers, you know, feeling happy, feeling safe and forgetting about all the horrible things that are going on outside. So thank you again also to our previous panelists for stepping up again on short notice, you know, pulling something together like this is a community effort. So once again, a big shout out to the people behind the scenes, the big picture, Film Grail, Maria, Simon, Rob, everybody else. It's really much appreciated what you do. And I hope we've left you with a little bit of feeling that there is hope. And really, if you need any final thoughts and anything to be optimistic about, at least if you live in the UK, I can tell you, every man is providing free pizza and wine. Yes, free, as in free of charge. Buy a ticket, you get free wine and pizza Monday through Wednesday to celebrate the fact that they're celebrating 100 years since the opening of the first cinema. So cinema is coming back. Thank you.